Good morning. Thank you. My name is Dennis. I am one of the pastors here, and as you can tell, uh, both Pastor and Bruno and I have switched roles this morning, uh, and I really do appreciate pastors um, allowing me to tag team him in this series called Money Matters. Uh, for those of you who are here for the first time, we tend to do a stewardship message uh, once a year, and lucky you, this is a Sunday, and this is the month we're doing it. But you know, I, I, I recognize that Stewardship or generosity, uh, these types of series can be a little uncomfortable for some. So I would like to lighten up the mood just a little bit. And sharing a story I think I've shared before, but a story I think is really, really funny. But you know what? If you don't think it's funny, would you laugh anyway? Because it'll just make me feel better. There were two guys stranded on a uh, deserted island. They had no food, no water. No way to communicate to anyone. And guy number one's absolutely flipping out, screaming, crying. We have no food. We have no water. We're going to die. And guy number two is just calm as a cucumber, you know, laying against a palm tree, just enjoying the ocean breezes. And guy number one says, how can you possibly be so calm? We're not going to make it. Guy number two says, look, Relax. I make over $10 million a year, and I tithe. Trust me, my senior pastor will find us. <laughs> if you make close to that and you tithe, would you let me know the next time you go on vacation? All right, I just want to know where you are. Um, some may say that stewardship is a code word for asking for money. And I suppose that's true to a point. But if we honestly consider the subject of how we part with our money, I believe we can discover much about ourselves. I know that I did years ago when I first uh, went through a biblical um, teaching series. And, and it, it changed my life. And our text this morning has much to say about how financial security affects our trust in God. So this morning, we're going to look at uh, Matthew uh, chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. And as we take a look at this text, we're going to break it down a bit, and hopefully um, you'll be blessed. So let's take a look at it. If you have your Bibles, you can go there, or you can follow me uh, on the screen. Starting with verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. It's not... Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so loves the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. So we see in this text, as you know, it starts with therefore. So the therefore reminds us that we're breaking into a sermon, sermon that Jesus has been preaching, right? And he has said something that leads him to making the remarks in our text. So the question is, what did he say? So I think to really understand this text, we need to go back a few verses. So follow me, if you will. Let's go back to verse 19, and I will have it on the screen for you as well. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what is Jesus saying here? Simply, possessions, possessions possess the inherent dangers or danger of becoming our idols. See, we tend to put our trust in them, and sometimes we put our love in them as well. And they, in turn, can increase our hold on them. Now, folks, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, they can undermine our trust in him and ultimately our love for God. So as we read through the scriptures, it's a fact of life that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. We cannot serve God and money. Now, I think for most of us, our reaction would be that we don't serve money, right? We, we, we're not greedy, and I don't think we, we seek after wealth. I mean, at least not obsessively. I, I don't believe that. We merely seek to provide for oneself and to provide for our families, which is exactly what we should do. It's good, and it's our responsibility to provide for our families. But listen. Sometimes it's all too easy for sensible responsibility to turn into an undue love and care for physical comforts and security. Look, Jesus follows his teaching about making earthly treasures our masters by pointing out their starting place where we sometimes go astray. Look how our text starts again. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Here's the issue. And Jesus presents the issue here, which is worrying over life's necessities. Did you get that? Worrying over life's necessities, sustenance, and protection for the body. We worry so as if life is nothing more than taking care of these things. And Jesus is saying we must just keep a proper perspective on this. Don't be anxious about these things. Don't be anxious. He then proceeds, as Jesus tends to do, to explain why we do not need to worry. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. 
we see that the Father cares enough for them to see that they obtain exactly what they need. This comes in, and this is Jesus' point. Are you not of more value than the birds? Will God, who's made us a little lower than angels, not take even more care in providing for us? Matthew 10, 29 says this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. Whew, glad about that, right? You know, Jesus has an uh, interesting perspective on how birds are fed. You know, we look at birds and we see that they actually do labor for food. They really do. They catch worms. They catch bugs. Uh, they personally eat my grass seed. They invade our, our gardens. Um, a little embarrassed to share this, but I will. About two months ago, I was sitting in my backyard for over 45 minutes watching a seagull circle the water looking for a fish. I kept watching this bird over and over. He would dive bomb the water, you know, and miss. For 40, matter of fact, I started praying for the darn bird to catch a fish, you know. He finally caught a fish after 45 minutes. Amazing. Okay? They do not do the work of a farmer, yet they do what they are fit to do nonetheless. And that is just the point I want to make here, that God feeds them by giving them the characteristics necessary to feed themselves. And also, to be fair, God also feeds them by controlling the circumstances. How many people have bird feeders? I have five. Right, so I've made up for most of you, okay? I have five. The point is, God provides. Okay? What is my point again? Jesus is not saying, do not labor for food. We are equipped to labor. But don't, however, give in to worry about it. Don't be anxious about it. And the next verse emphasizes the problem. It says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Now, I guess you can make the argument that we can add hours and years to our lives by taking care of our bodies, which, okay, I think we should take care of our bodies. And also worrying about our health does nothing except reduce hours. But I guess, to be fair, you can make the theological truth that our days are numbered by God anyway, and they cannot be changed. But I think in this context, God is just mocking the way we worry. The body is not made for worry. Worry causes ulcers, headaches, backaches, stress, depression, so on and so on. And you know what? I also think worry is unnatural. I don't think plants and animals worry. Look, I'll tell you this. I've had dogs my entire life. And any dog owned by Dennis Faye never worried about a thing in its life, all right? My dogs were fat, dumb, and happy. I'm telling you. I'm serious, all right? Worry is the interest we pay on tomorrow's troubles. Jesus goes on to say, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the, into the oven, 
Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I'm sure Jesus would have something to say about our emphasis um, on style and fashion. But he's speaking to the common people of the day who really weren't concerned about style. But having the proper uh, clothing to keep oneself warm and protected and modest. So again, the issue is this. The issue is simply being concerned for life's necessities. The point is that God will not only provide for us, but he will more than meet our needs. And we need to understand that. We need to believe that. He goes on to say, look at the flowers. And I love this example. He says, look at the flowers. They don't even labor, and God richly arrays the flowers. And Jesus used King Solomon as a perfect example of a person being richly arrayed. Not even King Solomon could outdo the common lilies of the field, which have but a few days' lifespan. Now listen, seriously. Are we not more value than a flower? Are we not more valuable than the birds of the air? Will God not take care of us, his creation? My friends, God is not a miser. God's not a miser. He does not hoard his wealth or begrudge taking care of his people. He made us in his image, and especially the children of his covenant to whom Jesus is speaking in this sermon. He goes on, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Children, without parents to provide for them, may worry about sustenance and protection. I, we get that. And like Gentiles, by whom Jesus would mean people outside God's covenant care, naturally worry about the necessities of life. And they make worrying uh, about the necessities of life their priority. But just as children with parents do not worry about such things, we, as children of God, should not worry about that, that our Heavenly Father will forget about us, nor that he will not take care of us, because he will. Now, this next point, I really want you to grasp, because I think it's really important. I think we know this, but we forget this. Jesus wants us to grasp God the Father as being truly our Father, who possesses both the power and the love to care for his people, for his children. And this understanding of God as a loving father is a very distinctive teaching of Jesus Christ. Look what Luke says. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is what Jesus is really saying. You fathers, with all your sins, with all your issues, with all your hang-ups, you still prefer to give your children good food to eat, and you prefer to give them good things rather than bad things for them. And we're sinful human beings. How much more will a heavenly father give us? I know I speak for many of you. I'm a father. I love being a dad. I have two beautiful daughters, two great sons-in-laws, and I have five grandchildren. I will do anything for my children and my grandchildren. And I delight, 
I delight in helping them. And I delight even when they ask me. How much more will a heavenly father do for us? Our father is the holy God who cannot sin and who, as he likes to say, is abounding in steadfast love. Now, I know that we like to refer to ourselves as these unworthy servants who deserve no favor or, or, or rich, uh, wretched sinners deserving God's anger. Okay, that's fair. But the truth is the God, that God, God the Son has claimed us as brothers and sisters has made us, and made us as sons and daughters of the Father. We are family, and we just have to get used to the fact that our Father actually delights in giving us good things. And he likes having his children ask him to provide for them. I actually believe the father gets a kick out of being generous. But let me just say this as well. This is not a prosperity gospel message, okay, at all. What I'm saying is we have a heavenly father who loves us and he cares for us. I am one of six boys. And uh, I remember telling my parents uh, I would never leave the New York, Connecticut area. Then I became the only one who left. Point being, um, my five brothers are still up in the Connecticut area. My parents live there as well. Over the years, my dad has not been able to help me as much as he's helped my other brothers, just because I'm not in the area. It's a long time ago, about 25 years ago. I was working on a project, and I needed my dad's help. So I called him. You would have thought the man won the lottery. Really, he, he took such delight that I would ask him. He was getting ready to get in his car and drive seven hours to help me. I said, Dad, stop. I just need some guidance here. But the point is, I'm his son. He's my father. And he delighted in helping me. How much more will a heavenly father help us? We serve a God who is generous, so get used to it and quit hoarding possessions, thinking that your father won't be so generous later because his love, unlike ours, is steadfast. So stop worrying about these things because he will take care of us. And you know what? He has other matters that he wants us to concentrate on. And this is really the heart of the message this morning. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you believe that? I hope you do. To seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness means, first, we must turn to God for salvation. We must enter into his kingdom first. I'm going to say this. If you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, do not leave this building without talking to Pastor Bruno, myself, one of the elders, one of the leaders. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, or if you need to know how to do that, do not leave this building. Please don't. We would be delighted to help you. Step number one, we need to enter the kingdom of God. And step number two, we must make kingdom priorities our priorities. To seek first the kingdom of God. Now, what do I mean by kingdom? Let me be clear. Kingdom is that which recognizes and promotes his rule and his reign. To seek first his kingdom is to seek first his rule, his will, and his authority. Seeking God's kingdom is losing ourselves, and here it is, obedience to the Lord. 
at least to the extent that we can. And to seek God's kingdom is to pour out our lives into the eternal work of our Heavenly Father. And I think the Apostle Paul does a great, has given us many great examples of being obedient to the Lord as he trusted God in his ministry. I love the Apostle Paul. And Acts chapter 20, we know the story. Paul was being compelled by the Spirit to go into uh, Jerusalem. And God had not revealed his purpose uh, of his journey. But the Spirit told Paul that great trials awaited him. So in spite of the warnings and his own fears, he refused to back away from the trip. He said that he would consider his life of no value except as it could be used to finish the race and complete the task that the risen Christ had given him. Wow. Paul. It's a wonderful example of a man who sought first the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, we are to seek his righteousness. Righteousness that, that which is in accord with his character or Christ-likeness. Listen, instead of longing after the things of this world, we are to hunger and thirst for the things of the world to come, which are characterized above else, of all else by personal righteousness or obedience, there's that word again, to God. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And folks, to accomplish this, we must have Jesus' own truth Love and righteousness manifested in our lives. And to have peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. To seek righteousness is seeking to win people into God's kingdom. That they might be saved and God might be glorified. Listen, we must change our mindset to making living for God our aim in life. To make living for God our top priority in life. Seek first the kingdom of God. I love what Jesus says in verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Do we believe that, by the way? I think we struggle sometimes. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I think this fits in real well with the realism of the scriptures. Yes, God provides. We know that. But you know what? Life has its troubles, right? All the more reason... We should not add anxiety or worry about the future. Folks, we're going to go through enough trials and tribulations where we don't need to fill in the gaps, worrying about things that may or may not happen. We serve a generous God. We serve a God who loves to give generously to his children. But can I say one more thing about that? He does have a thing about wanting us to trust him each and every day, to trust in him each and every day. As Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Not give us what we need tomorrow in case he can't come through, right? Daily provision. I think when we look at the scriptures, not just the scriptures we've looked at this morning, but we look at all the scriptures related to stewardship, I believe we can safely conclude that we serve an extremely generous God who, who, who delights in giving to his children and that he wants to provide for us as it relates to life's necessities. 
You serve a generous God. But how generous are we? And here it comes. What about our given? What about our given? In light of Jesus' message on worry and the daily provisions and keeping focus on God's kingdom, here's a question. How well does our given to the Lord reflect our trust in our Heavenly Father? That's a question each person needs to wrestle with privately. A church member was having trouble with the concept of tithing. One day, he revealed his doubts to his minister. Pastor, I just don't see how I can give 10% of my income to the church when I can't even keep on top of my own bills. The pastor replied, John, if I promise to make up the difference in your bills if you should fall short, do you think you could try tithing for just one month? After a moment's pause, John responded, sure, if you promise to make up any shortage, I guess I could try tithing for one month. Now, what do you think of me, mused the pastor? You say you'd be willing to put your trust in a mere man like myself who possesses so little materially, but you couldn't trust your heavenly father who owns the whole universe. Next Sunday, John tithed, gave his tithe, and has been doing so ever since. Who are you trusting in? One of the questions uh, we hear often is, as it relates to tithing, how much should we give? Well, I want to be clear on the amount. First of all, let me just say this. That's between you and the Lord. Okay? I want to make that very, very clear. That's between you and the Lord. But again, unlike Israel in the Old Testament, there's no law that mandates how much we should give the church or its ministries. However, you knew there was a however. We do have excellent examples in the Old Testament of giving 10% of what our labor produces. Now, Pastor Bruno mentioned this last week, and I absolutely agree with Pastor Bruno. Um, I believe that's where we need to start. And that's normally where I encourage people to start. But again, let me say one more thing about that. Whether one gives above or below that level, that's between you and the Lord, we should, have, we should have an amount that consistently rises or falls with our income. This way, giving does not become a very easy thing to do when our giving rises and leaves us with more money to keep to ourselves, nor does it become an undue burden when our income falls. I've looked at a number of scriptures as it relates to stewardship. And I, I, I truly believe this, that um, God wants us to give enough. So number one, we're demonstrating kingdom priorities. Seek first the kingdom of God. But number two, we're also demonstrating our trust in him to provide for us. I guess if I were to summarize this message this morning in one word, it would be trust. Trust. Who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in God? And if so, what does, it, what does it mean to trust God? Well, first of all, to trust is to believe in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of something. So when it comes to trusting God, 
That means believing in his reliability, his word, his ability, and his strength. Look, the Bible is very clear. God cannot lie that he always keeps his promises, that he loves you and has good in store for you. And trusting in him means believing what he says about himself and what he says about the world. And listen, trusting in God is much more than a feeling. It is. It's a choice to have faith in what he says, even when your feelings or circumstances would have you believe something different. Listen, I get it. Your feelings and, and circumstances matter and are very much important. I think God understands that and, and, and believes that. But those things alone are not re reliable enough to base your life on. They can change at a moment, even in an instant. God, on the other hand, doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and thankfully tomorrow. And because of that, because of that, he is worthy of our trust. Folks, trust in God it's not about ignoring your feelings or reality. It is not pretending that everything is okay when it isn't. Trust in God is having a life, listen, of belief and in obedience to God, even when it's difficult. For many, trusting God with their money is difficult. And I can stand before each person today and say, I get it. I know. Because it was a very difficult for my, a thing for my wife and I many, many years ago. Now, I've had the opportunity to um, share my stewardship testimony. I'm not going to do it here, uh, at least not in full. But I can tell you that I grew up in a church that did not teach stewardship. I heard it here for the first time 26, 25 years ago. And the first year I heard it, it really didn't have a, a big impact on me. But the second year, it did. My wife and I were both working for the Department of Agriculture at that time. And of course, um, we thought we knew more than God. <laughs> we just did. And so we decided, you know what? We need to kind of raise our game a little bit as it relates to giving. And so we met for lunch one day, and we had a plan. We had a plan. We would give God 5% this year, 7% the next year, and then 10%, a three-year plan. Because you know what? We had spreadsheets, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, the spreadsheets just were not adding up unless we did it that way. And, of course, spreadsheets don't lie. So, you know, we made that decision. And I, as I left the cafeteria, I was walking back to my office. My spirit was heavy. It was heavy. I knew I wasn't completely trusting God. And the cool thing is, my wife felt the same way as she went back to her office. And that night, we agreed. We need to give 10%. And we did that. And can I tell you, our life went crazy for three months. Everything that could break in our house broke. I mean, we just had one disaster after another. But we kept given. At the end of the year, we finished in the black by only a couple of dollars, but we finished in the black. And it, it, just, it just revealed a number of things. Number one, God provides. All right? We saw that. But number two, we realized we really weren't cheerful givers. But after that, we became cheerful givers because we saw what God can do. And it wasn't about money. 
It was about our placing our trust in the God who spoke the universe into existence. If we can believe that God spoke the universe into existence, how can we not trust our God with our money? I love stewardship testimonies. I, I, I do. And the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear a couple. And I believe you're really going to be excited and encouraged. But I want to share a testimony because I also enjoy testimonies of men and women who are in business, who made the decision to trust God completely. Now, we know there are people who've made a fortune and at the end of their lives gave their money away, which is great. But I want to read a testimony of a man who, before he made it, made the promise uh, to tithe. His name is William Colgate from Colgate and Palmolive. And I hope this will encourage you as much as it encouraged me. 12-year-old William Colgate woke with a start as someone pounded on the door of the house. It was the middle of the night in the small town of Shoreham near London. William Pitt, the British Prime Minister, had sent a private messenger to warn his friend, Colgate's father, that he must leave England or risk imprisonment or possibly death. People knew that Robert Colgate had sympathized with the Americans during their recent fight for independence. So in March 1795, the Colgates boarded ship for Baltimore. When the family arrived in America, they settled on a farm. Then William's father formed a partnership with Ralph Mayer to manufacture soap and candles, and William helped the two men. The partnership dissolved after two years. William's father wanted to get back to farming. William, 19 years old at the time, decided that he would go into business on his own. On his own. However, his business failed within a year. William determined to try again, this time in New York City. Be sure you start right, and you'll get along well, advised a friend, a canal boat captain who was a Christian. Someone will be the leading soap maker in New York. It may be you. Be a good man. Give your heart to Christ. Give God all that belongs to him. Make an honest soap and give a full pound. William read the Old Testament story of Jacob's vow. When Jacob left home, he said, If God will be with me and will watch over, over me on this journey I am taking, it will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. And all that you, God, give me, I will give you a tenth. Genesis 28. Uh, verses 20 through 22. Jacob's vow challenged William. He made a similar vow. He determined to give God first place in his life. There you go, seek first. And he also promised to give a tenth, a tithe of all his profits to God. In 1804, at the age of 21, William found employment with a company called Slidell and Company, where he learned more about the soap-making business. When two years later, the company ceased production, William was ready to try again. William Cogate and company met with success from the start. Within six years, he added the manufacture of starch to his laundry soap business. Later, he also produced hand soap and a variety of toilet and shaving soaps. As Colgate's business grew, so did his family. In 1811, he married Mary Gilbert, and they became the parents of 11 children given most biblical names. They attended church, had family worship, read the Bible together, and William became known as Deacon Colgate and his church. He liberally supported missions and Christian education. 
and he donated large sums to several educational institutions, including Madison College in Hamilton, New York. It's now called Colgate University in his honor. William never forgot his promise to God. From the first dollar he earned, he devoted 10% of his net earnings to benevolence. As he prospered, he instructed his accountants to increase the amount to 20%, later to 30 and eventually 100% of his profits. The more he gave, the more he prospered. William saw in his business the fulfillment of the promise made to tithe that God will throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have room for it. Malachi 3.10. Pastor Bruno spoke on that last week. In 2018, Colgate made over $13 billion. Business has been going for over 200 years. We serve a generous God. We serve a good, good Father. Who are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Let's pray. Lord, we know that even when we go through bad or difficult times, you're good. We can count on you. Because we know that nothing is good enough, is good outside of you. We know that you're perfect in every way. So help us, Lord, to trust in your goodness and your perfect provision for us no matter what our circumstances are in our lives. Father, we just thank you and praise you for who you are. Father, we thank you for the generosity that you've bestowed upon this ministry. But more importantly, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, I just pray that you would help us finish this message in our hearts. And we commit all of these things to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.